Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning and welcome to Old Providence Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. As I just said, as you're coming in, make sure that you grab a bulletin. It has, I don't know, there should be a catchy name. I'm going to call it your worship packet. That makes us sound like a hip and exciting worship center church. But anyway, it's got your, your music in there. It's got the scripture passage, which is a long one for this morning. So please do make sure that you have one of these. Now again, welcome. What a joy it is to be with you today as the Lord has set this time apart for you and for me to come together and worship because he alone is worthy of our worship. And I welcome you no matter what circumstances brought you here today because ultimately I know that the Lord worked all things so that you and I, so that we could have this time together to come before him. Now, as we come together, let me just point you to your bulletin and encourage you to be aware of the goings-on. Lots of things are rolling by week by week now. Um, Amanda, my lovely wife, is going to make an announcement in just a moment here about an event. But let me just tell you, this coming week, we will not be having our Wednesday night prayer meeting and Bible study. I've been called out of town for an important meeting, and uh, please do be in prayer for that. It's a denominational meeting that is down in South Carolina. So no prayer meeting this coming Wednesday night. Other things are going on too, like youth group is tonight at 5.30, and it's important um, because we're going to be talking about different things like the summertime, all that kind of stuff. So be aware of that. Now, Amanda, if you'll make your announcement. Do I need to come right here? Yes. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> um, so I just wanted to say a couple things. Um, so this Thursday at, was it 12.30, I think, um, we are having a ladies' luncheon. This is not anything formal. This is just all the ladies of the church are invited. It's not a part of any group like women's ministries or anything like that. It's just a time of fellowship. So we would love if you can join us at lunch this Thursday at Quaker State. Um, please join us. It's, again, nothing formal, just a time to spend time together as ladies. So we would love if you could join us. Another thing we're working on is Vacation Bible School. So uh, get excited about that. <laughs> so we're working on that. Um, and I'll, you'll be hearing from me very soon about that. So thank you. Vacation Bible School. Can you believe it? That time is upon us again. And don't you let her fool you. She's really excited. We've already gotten the curriculum. We've had things in the mail. So... It'll be here before we know it, and ladies do be aware of that going on. Do they need to let you know or Carol know about if they're coming? Yeah, so let Amanda or Carol know, Carol Mish, if, if you are going to be in attendance for that, ladies. Now, um, there's other things going on. I'm going to let you find those in your bulletin. There's, like, there's a reminder there. If you're not on our one-call system, for instance, and you'd like to get signed up, please do let me know. Debbie is here. She's the voice of the one-call Y'all, I used to do that in my last church. I cannot, I tell Debbie this all the time, but I cannot tell you how much I appreciate Debbie doing that. She does such a fabulous job, so thank you, Debbie. But if you're not signed up for that, please do, because that gives you updates about different things going on, prayer requests, and we can get you signed up for that. Um, Monday Midday is returning March 4th. Other things, but I'll let you find those. Again, I welcome you all. It's the Lord that has called us here, so let's prepare our hearts for worship as Donna leads us in the prayer. morning our call to worship is definitely pertinent to where we will be later in God's word but we come together with the 75th psalm this morning and the subheading is for the choir director do not destroy a psalm of Asaph a song and it says we give thanks to you God we give thanks to you for your name is near people tell about your wondrous works when I choose a time and this is Quoting the Lord, when I choose a time, I will judge fairly. When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. 
I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn against heaven or speak arrogantly. Exaltation does not come from the east, the west, or the desert. For God is the judge. He brings down one and exalts another. For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine blended with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink it, draining it to the dregs. As for me, I will tell about him forever. I will sing praise to the God of Jacob. I will cut off all the horns of the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. My friends, what a message this is about God and his power that in all the world, the world rages and it plots as we see all the way back at the beginning of the Psalms. However, the Lord is the one who exalts. The Lord is the one who judges and the Lord is the only one that is worthy not only of our praise, but our honor, of our trust and of our faith, for he never disappoints. We in and of ourselves are not the righteous ones, but because of Christ we have been declared righteous in his perfect obedience to God and it is in his name that we come now praising God for being this who he has shown himself to be. So let's keep this in mind as we take our insert and sing number 21, hymn number 21, Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee. Please stand with me as we sing. seated. Now let's take this time to go to our Lord in prayer, after which we will pray the Lord's Prayer and confess the Apostles' Creed, both of which are available in your little handout here. So let's go to the Lord now. Our God and our Father, we praise you and we thank you that as we have heard in your word, as we have lifted up in song already, that you are the God that exalts, that you are the God that humbles, that you are the one who is sovereign over all things even the fact that we are here right now. 
And we are here because you've given us another opportunity. Another opportunity to stop and to focus on you. To lift up songs of praise where we can lift up the fact that you are our Father and Christ is our brother and we have been adopted into your kingdom. And so we should sing joyfully and triumphantly. You've given us the opportunity to stop and to pray. You've given us the opportunity to go to your word, to learn, yes, certainly, but even more so to be convicted by your Holy Spirit about who you are and who we are. So please, be with us in this time. Guide us so that this time would glorify you and honor your name and be pleasing to you. And that also we would be blessed as a result. We pray these things in Christ's name. And we also pray as he taught us to pray. Saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen indeed. And now as we say the Apostles' Creed together, let me ask you, Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen indeed. And now let's continue our time of worship as we stand again and sing number 380, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us. Please stand with me. You may be seated. Now let's take this time 
to go to our Lord in silent prayer, and then I will lead us in the pastoral prayer, but let's go to him now. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, great, great is your name in all the earth. You are great for your majesty. You are great for your power. You are great for your justice. You are great for your mercy. You are great for your hand of grace, for your provision, for the ways that you watch over us, our goings and our comings for the ways that you provide, not only the basics of what we need, but also in the many blessings that you give to us, blessings too numerous to even count, and often enough, blessings that we do not even recognize. And yet, your giving, your grace, your mercy is not contingent upon our gratitude. Even so, Father, Let us be grateful people. Let us examine ourselves. Look to the example of our lives that prove your faithfulness again and again. Forgive us for when we're short-sighted, for when we miss your hand at work or misinterpret what's going on. Forgive us when you are so grateful to, or faithful to us, Father, and yet we're not faithful to you. We run after our own way. Our commitment is lacking. We don't live in light of the salvation that we've been given too often. And instead, we may give you a wink and a nod and forget about you at other times. And Father, we face these seasons in life. We know this. But thank you for your patience in dealing with us. But it's our desire that we would commit all anew. That you would be our focus. That you would be our vision. And that, Father, we would have the good sense to realize that it's only when we commit to you and have you as our real focus that we find the contentment that we go looking for in all sorts of places. Whether it's things whether it's experiences, whether it's other people. None of these fulfill, only you do. So please, work in our hearts to that end. As we face challenges to this, we pray that you would work in our hearts to address them. If it's a challenge of sinfulness, or there are areas in our life that we need to take before you, that we need to lay at your feet, then convict us and correct us in your mercy. If it's challenges of a physical variety, it's illness, please work and bring healing. We think of those that aren't with us this morning that desperately want to be but can't be. We think of Judah, for instance, after she's recovering from her stroke. And we pray, we, we thank you that it wasn't worse than it was, but we pray that you would continue to bless her with healing. And it's, it's miraculous what you've done thus far, but please work in her life. We pray for others that are waiting on procedures, that you would give them patience and grace. Still others who are facing recovery from from different things, we ask that you would give them that same measure of grace and peace as they wait on you. And yet, Father, we know that there are even more challenges that we face in this life. Some of a logistical variety, some economic challenges. The list goes on and on of what we face, and yet you know all of these. So please, work in our hearts that we again and again would look to you. We pray this not only for ourselves, we pray it for your church universal, for it's when we trust in you that we point the world to you. And Father, we know that the world needs you. As we think about different things going on, it's it's an election year, different things happen locally, nationally. They're all reminders that the world needs Jesus Christ. So we pray that first and greatest prayer of the church, come Lord Jesus. 
Come quickly. But Father, as we wait, let us be faithful. Let us be expectant about your good grace and mercy. And let us share our hope with others. We pray this in all things in Christ's name. Amen. Yes. Yes, if we have children, they may be dismissed now. I don't think that we do this morning. But if we do have children, they may be dismissed. Thank you so much, Par. What a wonderful example, what a wonderful reminder of God's graciousness to us in all the ways that he gives and in all the ways that he provides. So thank you. Well, my friends, while I am excited, as always, to have the privilege of preaching God's word to you today, got to admit, in light of where we are, I'm a bit apprehensive. Perhaps you have looked and have seen it, but today we come to Ezra chapter 2. Uh, We started Ezra a couple of weeks ago and spent two weeks on chapter 1 as we saw such wonderful principles as the fact that that God always keeps his promises and that that God is able to do the impossible to keep his word, including transforming our hearts so that we go from those only concerned about ourselves to those who give freely and cheerfully. And indeed, that theme is carried over to chapter 2. As we're going to read in just a few moments, the exiles returning to Judah gave a free will offering to the Lord of their own. We've seen the Persians give, right, at least initially. And today we will see what the exiles give. But even so, 
Let's be honest about something. Upfront and honest in terms of where we're going today. Uh, chapter 2 in Ezra presents a grand temptation to us. And that temptation is to discount it and dismiss it as mere record keeping. As just a list with difficult to read names. And that's kind of what I'm apprehensive about as I'm about to read them. <laughs> Just a list of names that isn't really that important. And it isn't just Ezra 2 that we find portions of God's word like this and these sorts of lists. Sometimes in God's word, it's people that are listed in genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so and so on. Sometimes it's articles or things that are mentioned like armies and, and numbers and dimensions of things like the tabernacle, including how many bowls it has and candlesticks and that sort of thing. Our temptation with these sorts of lists and these sorts of places in God's word is to say, well, are we really going to waste our time going through this sort of thing? What's the point of this? I'm not going to remember it or, or something to that effect. But in reality, the lists that we find in God's word both paint an important picture for us to see, but also point to truths that we ought to embrace. The title for today's sermon, if you've seen it in the bulletin already, is Names and Faces. And the reason for this is that while we may be tempted to just skip over this section of Ezra and label it as unimportant, when I was talking to Stephanie this past week, you know, she prints this in here. I said, Stephanie, normally it's a short passage that you have to put in the bulletin, but we need to put the whole thing. She was kind of surprised that I was going to be reading all of it, and indeed we are. But while we're tempted to just skip over this section of Ezra and label it as unimportant, that couldn't be further from the truth. The names that we are about to read, along with the gifts that were given, all point to real-life people in time and space. People who left life as they knew it. Remember, y'all, all these names that we're about to read, the, the, these people's descendants, right? These were God's people that had been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Two generations have passed. And now the Lord is calling them to go home. So this list represents the names and the faces of people who left life as they knew it. All in order to trust and follow God. And the list of gifts that they gave represent a people who did what I talked about last week. That This list represents people that gave to the Lord from their hearts, cheerfully. And of course, y'all, the, the point is not to look upon such people with awe. Remember, the Bible isn't a book about people, despite the 125 names or so that we're about to read. Instead, the point is to look at awe upon our Savior, who always provides a way. The Bible isn't a book about people, it's a book about God, and his faithfulness to his covenant people. Even when that way means preserving a people for himself. As Ezra tells us, the ancestry of God's people here. But also when God's faithfulness means rousing and working in people's hearts. That too shows God's faithfulness. And so with this in mind, I'm going to tell you now, bear with me. Because realize the names that we're reading, I've taken Hebrew, but... Hebrew is not English, okay? The, the words aren't pronounced, the, the, they aren't structured. And this isn't even Hebrew. This is Hebrew that's, uh, that, 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 that's anglicized, right, to put into to words that we're supposed to be able to read. So bear with me as we read it together. But keep in mind the real point of what we are reading here as we begin in Ezra chapter 2, verse 1. But first, let's pray. Our God and our Father, as we come to your word now, we pray that you would bless us in this time. And, this section where it and others we are tempted to skip over. Let us remember that the best part of today is right now when we read your word. Though these are names that we are likely to forget many of them, they represent your faithfulness. And they point to your faithfulness that you have shown to us. So please, now, work in our hearts and guide us in this time. Let it be pleasing to you. By your Holy Spirit, turn the lights on so that we can see. And we pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Ezra, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, These now are the people of the province 
who came from those captive exiles King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had deported to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reeliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Baanah. The number of the Israelite men included Porosha's descendants, 2,172, Shephatiah's descendants, 372, Araz's descendants, 775, Pahath Moab's descendants, Yeshua and Joab's descendants, 2,812, Elam's descendants, 1,254, Zatu's descendants, 945, Zakai's descendants, 760, Benai's descendants, 642, Bibai's descendants, 623, Asgad's descendants, 1,222, Adonikam's descendants, 666. And pausing for a second, no, that is not some end times prophecy. It was 666, okay? Continuing on. Uh, Big Vi's descendants, 2056. Aden's descendants, 454. Ater's descendants of Hezekiah, 98. Bazai's descendants, 323. Jorah's descendants, 112. Hashum's descendants, 223. Gebar's de descendants, 95. Bethlehem's people, 123. Natopa's men, 56. Anathoth's men, 128. Asmaveth's people, 42, Kirotherim, Seraphira's, and Baroth's people, 743, Ramaz and Geba's people, 621, Mikmas's men, 122, Bethel's and Ai's men, 222, or 23, Nebo's people, 52, Magbisha's people, 156, the other Elam's people, 1,254, Harim's people, what, 320. Lod's, Hadid's, and Ono's people, 725. Jericho's people, 345 people. Sana's people, 3,630. The priest included Jedediah's descendants of the house of Yeshua, 973. Emer's descendants, 1,052. Pashur's descendants, 1,247. And Harim's descendants, 1,017. The Levites included Yeshua's and Kadmiel's descendants from Hadoviah's descendants, 740 or 74. The singers included Asaph's descendants, 128. The gatekeeper's descendants included Shalom's descendants, Ater's descendants, Talman's descendants, Akub's descendants, Hatita's descendants, Shabai's descendants, in all 139. The temple servants included Ziha's descendants, Hasufa's descendants, Tabeos' descendants, Keros' descendants, Siaha's descendants, Padon's descendants, Lebanon's descendants, Hagabah's descendants, Akub's descendants, Hagab's descendants, Shalmai's descendants, Hanan's descendants, Gidel's descendants, Gehar's descendants, Rehiah's descendants, Rezin's descendants, Nekoda's descendants, Gazim's descendants, Uzzah's descendants, Pasea's descendants, Basai's descendants, Asna's descendants, Mezeum's descendants, Nephesim's descendants, Bakbuk's descendants, Hakufa's descendants, Hakur's descendants, Basluth's descendants, Mehadiah's descendants, Harash's descendants, Barkos's descendants, Sisera's descendants, Temaz's descendants, Neziah's descendants, and Hatifa's descendants. The descendants of Solomon's servants included Satai's descendants, Hasapher's descendants, Paruta's descendants, Ja'ala's descendants, Darkon's descendants, Gedel's descendants, Shephatiah's descendants, Hatil's descendants, Poshareth Hasabayim's descendants, and Ami's descendants. All the temple servants and the descendants of Solomon's servants, 392. The following are those that came from Tel Malah, Tel Harsha, Cherub Adan, and Emer, but were unable to prove their ancestral families and their lineages were Israelite. Deliah's descendants, Tobiah's descendants, Nakoda's descendants, 652. And from the descendants of the priests, the descendants of Habiah, the descendants of Hakoz, the descendants of Barzillai, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Barzillai the Gileadite, and who bore their name. 
They searched for their entries in their genealogical records, but they could not be found, so they were disqualified from the priesthood. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and Thummim. The whole combined assembly numbered 42,360, not including their 7,337 male and female servants and their 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. After, oh, we're not done yet. We're not done. But wait, there's more. After they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, some of the family heads gave free will offerings for the house of God in order to have it rebuilt on its original site. Based on what they could give, they gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. The priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the people settled in their towns, and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. Thus ends Ezra 2. May God bless the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen and amen. Now, as I read before, and thank you for that, as, I, as before reading, despite the length of the list that we've just read, and interestingly enough, you'll pretty much find the same list in Nehemiah, all right? The next book after Ezra that details the rebuilding of Jerusalem itself. But as I said, despite the list, the Bible is not a book about people. The Bible is a book about God's faithfulness, but as Derek Thomas titled his chapter on Ezra 2 in his commentary, Pilgrims Have Faces. And what we've just read, all the names, all the descendants, we've just read of pilgrims in a strange land making their way home to what many would have been a stranger land. And so we see this mix in chapter 2 of the people being named or the descendants being named and the goods that they offered being named all the way down to that there was 6,720 donkeys, not 6,719 donkeys. God is just that specific. But let's talk about these names. These people. Who were they? Well, we have the list of, of where they came from in terms of family lineage, which in itself is miraculous. After all, we can't forget the circumstances that took them to Babylon in the first place, right? We've talked about it since we started Ezra. But these people were exiles. Nebuchadnezzar, who's talked about here, talks about him taking them to Babylon. He, he swept down with his Babylonian war machine and he completely destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C. He, laid, he absolutely laid siege to Judah's wealth, to all of its possessions. As we talked about last time in chapter 1, he even took the articles from the temple and he placed them in the house of his gods as, as trinkets, right, of, of spoils of war. But think about what this did to the people. Not only are we talking about economic ruination here, because it would have ruined them economically, it's even deeper than that what happened. Read the book of Daniel sometime. It's really fascinating. Daniel shows us what Nebuchadnezzar's real goal was in doing what he did. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, after he swooped down and destroyed Jerusalem and Judah, he took Judah's children also as the spoils of war, the best and the brightest, the, the girls, right, to serve in his temples and in his palace. And he took Israel's sons or Judah's sons as his own. And if you were to read Daniel, you'd find out that, that Nebuchadnezzar took boys like Daniel and others. And the first thing he did was he gave them different names. Names like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember that, the fiery furnace? So the first thing he did was he changed their names. And, and then he taught them the language of Babylon. And then he taught them the philosophies of Babylon and the great libraries of ancient Babylon. Then he wanted them to eat all the foods of Babylon. We see in Nebuchadnezzar what the world wants to do with you, but even more so what the world wants to do with your children. Right? The world wants to change the way that you, and especially our children, the way that they think, the way that they act, the things that they enjoy. The world wants your children to forget where they came from and the God that they serve. That was the point of everything that Nebuchadnezzar did. 
This is one of the values of baptism and marking your children for God, placing them in the covenant, but that's for another sermon. Getting back to Babylon, the world through Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar tried to wipe out God's covenant people. That's the stock from whence these people came. But God is faithful. God preserved his people, a remnant faithful to him and for himself. And what we've read today is the end result of God's preservation. Also, the end result of what we read in the last chapter, verse 5. If you were to look at chapter 1, verse 5, you would see, So the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, along with the priest and Levite, everyone whose spirit God had roused, prepared to go up and rebuild the Lord's house in Jerusalem. And it's right there in the middle of the verse that's so important. Everyone whose spirit God had roused. That's who we just read about. So as you sort through the difficult names to read and all the different numbers, 139 here, 392 there, 652 there, read past those names and past those specific numbers and look to the fact that these are the ones. These are the ones whose heart, whose spirit God has roused. Now admittedly, The reason that they would have returned to Jerusalem would have been buried. Some would have returned for political reasons, to see Jerusalem reestablished. Some would have returned for economic reasons, going back to their family lands. Some would have returned for spiritual reasons, there's no doubt, especially as we've heard about the, the, the Levites, the priests, the singers. But all of them, all of the names that we've just encountered, all of these descendants, They all returned because the Lord had roused their spirits. And my friends, while we would be tempted to just skip over sections like Ezra 2, which often we're tempted to do because a lot of people have had fantastically boring preachers and history teachers and that sort of thing. We can't do that because these people were real. They aren't made up. And they all point to God preserving a people for himself. Now, here's the thing. If you're still hearing this and you still haven't gotten past the list and the details and and the droning on, if you're still saying, well, okay, great, but so what? Let me tell you the so what. First off, I've spoken about God preserving. But realize what we've read isn't just about the scraps that are left over of Judah, just the people who were left after 70 years. We get all sorts of clues here in what we read about how God preserves. That God doesn't just save, he lifts up and he provides. That's why, take for instance in verse 36, we read of the priests preserved that come not just from any family head, but they're Yeshua's descendants. And while we don't know much about Yeshua, we do know something about the name Yeshua. You see, the name Yeshua is Hebrew for what the Greek name would be, which is Jesus. Right, so even here you see this preservation of God's people pointing forward to Christ. And no, this isn't Jesus that is being talked about here, the Son of God, but it's certainly pointing forward to him. That's one example. Remember what Jesus, why he was named Jesus? Because he would save his people. Here we see in Ezra's telling of Judah's salvation. He brings back the one who saves. Skipping down a few verses to verse 41. When Ezra named the singers of the temple preserved. First off, realize that temple singers were preserved, right? It it, it shows us that God provides in all ways. Because realize, temple singing, it it wasn't like what we do. It's not like, okay, uh, all right, so we're going to sing, after this, we're going to sing Bible song number 270, which is Psalm 126. Yeah, I mean, they did sing the Psalms. As I've said, the Psalms were the songbook of ancient Israel. But the singers were dedicated to the worship of God in the temple. They were the ones whose whole lives revolved around singing the praises of God. And God didn't just preserve some singers. No. If you skip down to verse 41, you see specifically who it was. Because you find out that the singers include Asaph's descendants. 128 of them. Now, if you say, okay, great, who's Asaph? Do you remember the call to worship this morning? Psalm 75. Do you remember the call to worship last week? Psalm 50. 
both of which talk about the Lord's salvation. Both of which talk about the Lord's power and might and at the same time his love and his mercy. How he preserves his people and works in his people's heart. Both of those were written by Asaph to be sung in the temple. Asaph wrote these and several other in Psalms. He wrote of God's greatness and, and how the Lord is faithful. So while you and I might be tempted to just skip over this and say, oh, okay, you know, that's great, fine, Asaph, what, if that's even how you pronounce his name next, right? It may not mean much to us, but to those who are coming back from exile, to those that were told, hey, somehow, some way, the Lord worked in Cyrus's heart. To those that would have remembered what Isaiah prophesied, that Cyrus was named 200 years before he was ever appointed as king, they would have said, oh, it's not just us going. It's the descendants of Asaph that are going back. The Lord is, is working here. He's preserved. He's maintained. And he's blessing. And these are just two. The, the list here point to, to, to these stories and to so many others that may not make much sense to us and may not mean much to us, but would have meant everything to God's people as they considered who was left of the former glory of Jerusalem. If anything was left, if anyone was left. And that brings us to the next reason that Ezra 2 matters so much. If you're still saying, so what? Well, here's the so what. Look. It goes so much deeper than the list. If God could rouse the heart of his people 70 years after captivity, if God could rouse the heart of his people and preserve them after they lost everything when their homes were destroyed along with their nation, if God could rouse the hearts of his people when their previous generations had turned away from him, and to use the language of scripture when they went a-whoring after other gods and goddesses and idols. What does this say about what God can do with the world around you today, right now? What does this say that God can do with these United States where we're living? What, what does this say about what God can do with the people in your life that you may be struggling with, whether it's at work or in your family or... Maybe sitting beside you right now. What, what does this say about what the Lord can do at Old Providence in the midst of all that we've got going on? What does this say about what God can do with you? He roused their hearts to do the impossible. What, what can he do through rousing your heart? If God could do with these people what he did 2,500 years ago, what can he do with you and with me today? Well, I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to start at the start. What can he do with the world around us in these United States? Well, y'all, he, he can blow through with his Holy Spirit and baptize the whole world with fire, so much so that countless turn to him in faith. And let me tell you something. That's the story of the Scriptures. That's not only possible, that is what's going to happen because God tells us that's what's going to happen. Now, look, given the events as of late, I know, I get it. We can be tempted to see the world as going down and down and down and getting worse and worse and worse until Jesus has to come back. Um, somebody sent me something about this eclipse that's coming up and how it's passing over all these different cities named Nineveh as it makes its way from Texas. And it's like, oh, is that a sign? And, and, come, and I say, oh, it's a sign of something, but probably not the end times. Well, we've, it's already been debunked. It's not even going to go over like Nineveh, New York. It's not going to be anywhere close to it. But people like to put things on the Internet to get likes. But nevertheless, y'all, nevertheless. Well, we can look at the world around us and we can say, man, it's just falling apart and it's going to get so bad Jesus got to come back. Is that the story you find in the scriptures? Or do you instead find a church triumphant in God's word that Jesus Christ says he's going to build at the gates of hell? shall not prevail against. Do you find Jesus coming back to the scraps? Or do you find the Lord of the harvest returning to a field of wheat? There's tares. They have to be separated. But he returns to the field of wheat. You find the good shepherd returning to his flock. There are goats. Got to be separated. 
That's what you find. Not this secret left behind. Y'all don't get into that. Kirk Cameron this week, just this past week, came out against the idea of this secret rapture thing where Jesus comes back, but he doesn't really come back. Y'all, when you read God's word, you find out that there's only one second coming. And when Jesus comes back, that's it. He judges the world and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess. That's what you find in the scriptures. And the only way that's going to come about is if the Holy Spirit rouses the hearts of God's people. Ezra 2 points us to that reality that God can do this. He can take this morally corrupt society of ours that's like Nineveh, that's so stupid with sin and wickedness, so foolish and haughty that like Nineveh, we don't know our right hand from our left. We don't know which bathroom to use anymore. He He can take this society of ours and he can make it his. He can do the same thing with the people in your life and the situations that you may think are too far gone, that you may be struggling with. What can he do here? He can take old providence and he can work in our hearts to the point that while old providence has been blessed with history, with age, he can work in our hearts to the point that we realize that old providence is not an institution to be perpetuated till kingdom come, but instead we're the church of Christ. And we're part of that universal church that's not meant to just preserve itself, but to give itself away entirely for the sake of the kingdom. God can do that. What about you? What can God do with you? (laughs) Well, first thing, if you don't know him, he can save you. If you'll turn to Christ, I'm here this morning to offer you the gospel freely. If you'll turn to Christ, he will save you. You will never be alone again. And if you've never done that, repent from your sins. Ask him to forgive you and he will. Come and see me and and we will talk. But if you have done that, if you're already a child of the covenant, then God can take you. And not only will he be faithful to you, oh my. If God could do what he did 2,500 years ago with those exiles, think about what he could do with you. If he could rouse the 372 descendants of Shephatiah that we read about in verse 4, what could he do with the 40 or 50,000 lots around here? Right? Or hangers or coffees or Earhart's or Earhart's, depending on the spelling or Gordon's or Steele's or Richie's or you name it. If he could do this, With them, he can do it with you. And I'm not just talking about the old family names around here and in this church. It's it's interesting how we have these interludes in here. Like verse 62, it talks about those who searched for their lineages, but they could not be found. This is sort of like where I came from in in South Carolina. Several years ago, one of our churches closed in Second Presbyterian, the ARP down in South Carolina. And it was an old church too. It was back from the 1700s. We closed it down as a presbytery when pretty much everybody had died off and they were ready to give up. And um, they had a cemetery, and that's a big liability for presbyteries. And we worked out a deal to give it to Anderson County, South Carolina, um, in exchange for them caring for the building and, and, and the cemetery, which is a sad thing but a necessary thing. And when we had to start searching for the deed for it, we had to send somebody to the state house. And finally, they found a deed for the property. It was marked A.S., Anybody know what AS might stand for from a church that's really old in South Carolina? It stands for After Sherman. <laughs> well, really, because the Union swept through and it burned. It, I mean, it, it's funny to think about, but y'all, the Union swept through and burned Columbia, South Carolina, our, our state capital. You've seen a picture of Hiroshima post World War II? It looks a lot like Columbia, South Carolina. They burned all the deeds so that northerners could swoop in and claim property. They don't teach this sort of thing in schools anymore, of course, but that's for another sermon. Though I did just talk about Nebuchadnezzar trying to change the way that we think and where we come from and all that kind of stuff. Nevertheless, that's for another sermon. But but what happened in Jerusalem when Babylon destroyed it is very similar to what happened when Sherman raped, robbed, and pillaged all the way to the Atlantic Ocean through South Carolina. 
destroyed everything. Some people lost their lineage, their family documents. But even so, the Lord was faithful to them because as we've already seen, God keeps his word. God's able to do the impossible to keep it. If he could rouse their hearts so that they realize leaving everything and following the Lord was worth more than anything that Babylon could offer, what can he do with ours? He can transform you. He can transform us into a mobilized people, ready to go, which is about far more than moving physical location because as we'll see as we go along, God didn't just rouse their hearts to go home to Jerusalem. God didn't just rouse their hearts to rebuild the temple. He roused their hearts to worship him there. To once again be his people and not only in name, the biggest problem with American Christianity is we got a lot of people that call themselves God's people, and it's only by name. He would rouse their hearts so it can be with us. And he can rouse our hearts to give as it was with them. Verse 68 and following at the end of the chapter details all that they gave. And y'all, what's amazing is this. We read this, it's like, okay, great, you know, 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver. Remember, these are exiles. Two generations deep in Babylon, everything they had was taken as spoils of war. The modern day equivalent, if you added all this up and, and accounted for inflation, they came up with $450,000 worth of silver and gold and goods. These exiles. But so much more than treasure, they gave their time and their talent. Remember what we talked about a few weeks ago? The three T's that we convince ourselves belong to us. Our time, our talent, and our treasure. They gave all of them to the Lord. Because when God rouses the heart, it's always comprehensive. It's always complete. This is reflected in the last verse. Verse 70 says, The priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the other people settled in their towns. And the rest of Israel settled in their towns. You know, what we have here is a picture not only of God calling, but that when God calls, it's comprehensive. You don't have just Judeans. You have priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, servants, townspeople. You have everything you need for restoration. All the way down to the descendants of Levi himself. You know, when God calls his people, his call is complete. So it is with old providence. He has given us the people that he has given us for the task that lies at hand. God never calls without equipping. You can take that to the bank. He never calls without equipping. Whether it's him calling you now to trust in Jesus for the first time or calling you to trust in him for the 10,000th time to get behind what his word commands you to do and what his spirit is calling you to do. In service, in giving him whatever it is, the Lord is calling. The question is, like these, that we would be tempted to skip. The question is, like these, will you submit to his calling? Will you be obedient? Will you trust? Let's pray. Our Lord and our, our God, our, our, our strength and our salvation. Oh, Father, this passage that we would overlook, that we would just skip right over, tells us a story. A story of who you are and who you call us to be. For those here that do not know you, let them hear the call of your spirit. Enable them to come. Work in their hearts to that end. But for those here that know you already, work in their hearts and enable them to go. Let us be faithful. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now let us stand together and close by singing number 270. Bible song 270, which is Psalm 126, Deliverance and Restoration. Please stand up.
receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you.